So we're in Acts, and we finished chapter 7 last time, which was the stoning of Stephen. So now we're at chapter 8, and chapter 8 is a continuation of the stoning scene. So let's pick it up at 7.54. Now when they heard, they, the Sanhedrin or the elders or the temple goons or whoever they were, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Yeshua standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. You know, they stopped their ears. You've all witnessed the phenomenon where you're telling something you doesn't want to hear and they can't hear you. La, 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 la. That's sort of what's happening there. So they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Yeshua, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now chapter 8, And Saul approved of this execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So you have the stoning of Stephen. And at that point, I am assuming that the persecution may or may not have been official. It could have been sort of like the stereotypical thing of World War II movies, you know, when just sort of average Germans were persecuting Jews, or it may have been an officially sanctioned and directed persecution. And it's interesting that the apostles didn't scatter, just their followers. I'm sort of taking it to be the case that people didn't want to mess with them. Jailers found that they couldn't hold them. So I'm assuming it's not because anybody agreed with them necessarily, but just because they didn't want to take a chance of messing with them. That's my guess. So verse 2 now, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So that part is official. Now, again, most of you know this, but just very quickly, in the Roman Empire, the deal was that Rome was the hegemon. In other words, they were the ones that ran everything. And as long as you weren't doing rebellion, Rome pretty much let local jurisdictions govern themselves. So, for example, here the Sanhedrin and the temple authorities have the authority to arrest people for heresy and throw them in jail and so forth, and the Romans don't care. As far as they're concerned, this is all among the Jews. And in fact, you'll see that, for those of you who are studying the book of Romans, you see that because... Judaism was a legal religion in the Roman Empire. And Judaism had their synagogues and so forth, so they had authority to, for example, collect taxes. So they could collect taxes from the people who were members of their synagogue, and then, of course, remit them on to Rome. So they were, if you will, an authorized deputy is probably not the right word, but they were pretty much left alone as long as their people didn't make trouble. For example, when Paul goes on his missionary journeys, 
He gets stoned. He gets beaten. And that's not in Israel. That's up in Turkey, what today is modern-day Turkey and was then called Asia. So as he's going up there and he goes to a synagogue, the synagogue rounds him up and soundly beats him, uh, one case stones him, and the Romans don't care. And this is not in Israelite territory. This would have been in Gentile territory where there was a synagogue. So to use a rabbinic argument, how much more then were the Jewish authorities able to do these things in Israel proper? And again, we said last time, the reason that Yeshua was crucified is because they were afraid that he was going to foment a rebellion which was going to cause Rome to come down on Israel and displace the Jewish authorities with Roman authority. The fear in the case of Yeshua was a fear of rebellion. Not quite sure what the fear was in the case of the way here. It could be rebellion. As we said last time, Stephen's kind of got a mouth on him. So he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin and he tells them that your ancestors stoned the prophets and you're just like them and you killed Yeshua and you're no better. And, and you know, that just sort of naturally enraged him a bit. And that's what got him stoned. But I don't know what's driving the general persecution that takes place beyond that. My guess is certainly in the case of Saul, he has authority because in a couple of chapters, He'll get letters to go to Damascus, which is not in Israel, it's in Syria, and get Jews out of the synagogues there and haul them back to Jerusalem to be thrown in prison. So again, the idea here is that the Jews among their own have civil authority. So they can arrest people, they can have them beaten, they can have them stoned, they can do all sorts of things. Verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Messiah. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they all paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Notice the juxtaposition here. You've got Philip, who's an apostle, and he shows up, and he starts doing signs and wonders in the presence of the people. Heals people and casts out demons and so forth, which is big stuff. So you have this local guy, Simon, who is also able to do magic. So what you have is Philip and Simon sort of side by side, if you will. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Yeshua Messiah, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So this is a guy that does signs and wonders himself, whether legitimately or by trickery, I do not know. Because remember we had the case in the Torah portion last week, where 
Moses shows up in Pharaoh's court and casts his rod down and it turns into a serpent. And Pharaoh's magicians are able to do the same thing. They are also able to turn water into blood. No idea whether Simon is the real deal or simply a very clever charlatan, but in either case, he recognizes that he is in the presence of someone who is better at this than he is. And he gets baptized. So now into verse 14. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now remember we talked earlier about you have two baptisms, if you, if you will. You've got the baptism, essentially, of John, and then you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Lots of doctrinal differences among the current Christian church as to what all that means. I don't propose to go over that again. But it's apparent that people who are being baptized by Philip are not getting the Holy Spirit because Peter and John show up, and they do. So there is some difference there going on. So Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Yeshua. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Full stop here. Simon is operating based on his understanding. And he's been in that area doing magic. One assumes that he's probably being compensated for it. In other words, that's how he earns his living. And so when he sees the power of the Holy Spirit, he wants to get in on the deal. Now, he has at this point already been baptized. So Simon has been baptized in the name of Yeshua, but he has not received the Holy Spirit. So Simon, in the Baptist sense, if you will, is saved. But notice that getting saved doesn't change his understanding and doesn't change his character. As I am fond of saying, if you are fat, bald, and stupid before you get baptized, you'll be fat, bald, and stupid after you get baptized. It's just the way it is. And what you then have to do is you have to be discipled so that you learn about God and about Yeshua and about how you're expected to behave and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't just come shazam when you come up out of the water. And certainly it does not come upon Simon. So Simon doesn't get it and wants the full package. I want the Holy Spirit so that I can pray for people and get the Holy Spirit and I'm used to paying money for this kind of stuff. What's it cost? So I will suggest to you that he's not really doing anything evil. He's simply behaving as he understands. And, you know, not going out of his way to be bad, not trying to do anything weird. Just, okay, this is how it's done. I need it. So verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God for money. And again, Simon didn't necessarily understand it was a gift. I think he wanted to buy the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And what Peter is doing is making the point here that you can't. This is a gift. This is not something you can pay for. 
I'm not going to second guess Peter, but it seems a bit starship to me. One of the things God seems to do is when something new happens, he makes an example of someone. So the first example that I know of is when he gives them the Sabbath and you have the guy that's out there picking up sticks on the Sabbath and he gets stoned. Another one is Achan, where they're conquering the land and Joshua says, we don't touch anything in Jericho. And Achan picks up a wedge of gold in a Babylonian garment. He gets stoned in the process. And thereafter, they're allowed to loot. But only in this first case are they not. And so what God seems to do on a first time every time is he makes an example of someone. And that may be what's going on here. Because he's operating out of ignorance, not out of malice, I think. But I'm not Peter, and I'm not the Holy Spirit, and they're the ones that wrote the book, not me. So Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And again, you can look at that prayer two ways. Way number one is, Oh, I didn't understand. I'm sorry. And I repent. Way number two could be, Oh, this magician has just laid a curse on me. Let's ask him that that curse may be lifted. Still operating in the magic realm as opposed to operating in the repentance realm and had no idea which way he intended that. But certainly on the surface, it could be taken as acceptance of chastisement. In other words, Peter is chastising and he accepts the chastisement and moves on. In which case, I fully expect he's been forgiven. And certainly... I'm going to suggest that Peter, through the agency of the Spirit, is able to tell what he's dealing with. I'm not suggesting here that I'm second-guessing Peter. It's just I'm not quite sure from the words, the way it's written, exactly what's going on. But he's looking and seeing the guy is bitter, and he is a worker of iniquity. So that, I think, is pretty clear. 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And again, you all know, of course, that the Samaritans are not Jews. Samaritans were regarded as half-breeds. They were people that were moved into northern Israel by the Assyrians when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. And what they did is they moved the Jews out, ten lost tribes, and they moved these people in, and those people became the Samaritans. And they are not regarded well by Jews. So, 26. We're still dealing with Philip here. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopian, who was in charge of all her treasure. Several things. Somebody taught years ago, 
it's always sort of stuck with me, that Philip was doing really well where he was. I mean, he was in the middle of a revival. He was getting people baptized. He was doing all sorts of good stuff. And so if Philip were a preacher, he would say to God, wait a minute, I'm doing great here. What do you want me to go down there to the desert for? And the, the lesson, of course, is God decides what he wants to have happen next, not Philip. And, of course, Philip is obedient. And a word about eunuchs. Eunuch is a position title, not a biological description. So a eunuch is somebody who is an official in a court, such an official who has duties in the king's harem might also have himself altered so that we don't have little eunuch children running around. But we today tend to think of the eunuch as a man who's been castrated. That is not necessarily the case here. It's simply he's an official in the court and he's a treasurer, so it, it, very likely he was perfectly whole. Candace is a title, like Pharaoh. So Candace in, in the Ethiopian kingdom is a title for the queen. There have been several Candaces in succession. This would have obviously been the one that was there 2,000 years ago. But there were a number of them, and it's, and it's a title like Pharaoh or something like that. It's not a personal name. So anyway, this eunuch is in charge of the royal treasury. So second half of verse 27. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. So he stops at the airport, picks up something to read, and is reading this book he picked up in the airport on his way back down. And if you're in Israel, so the only thing in the bookstore is Isaiah, or scrolls of the prophets. During the Babylonian conquest, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and looted the place and took the temple vessels and stuff, there's some question as to whether he actually got the ark. And there are persistent legends that the ark wound up in Ethiopia. There are certainly a group of Hebrews that did wind up in Africa and down in Ethiopia. So there's an island in Ethiopia where they have what they say is the Ark of the Covenant, and it's guarded by people that they say are priests, and they follow Torah. So the idea that this Ethiopian eunuch might have been making a trip north to worship, and it says he was there to worship. The only thing that I would stutter stop on is his lack of understanding of the scroll Isaiah. And that feels more like a Gentile. So he may have been an Ethiopian Gentile who had contact with the Jewish community and the diaspora down there. I mean, there's all sorts of possibilities of what was going on. But certainly there was a Jewish community in the southern Nile region from Egypt on down to Ethiopia. And Ethiopian Jews are allowed to make Aliyah to Israel, and they are black Africans, and they're not at all pale-skinned. This 
thing I was reading speculated that the reason Philip got jerked out of a successful ministry to go down and talk to this guy is he is a man of some prominence in the court of the queen. And the idea then is that this guy will carry the gospel down to that region and will be in a position of some influence once he gets there. Verse 29, maybe. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life was taken away from the earth? And of course, of Isaiah 53. Now, again, the idea that this guy doesn't understand what he's reading, I can certainly easily believe that he wouldn't understand that it refers to Yeshua. I can understand he doesn't have all those connections, but the fact he knows he doesn't understand it, and he can't understand it unless somebody guides him, suggests that he may, in fact, be a Gentile and not someone who is schooled in the Scriptures, but could go either way. So verse 34, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this Scripture, he told him the good news about Yeshua. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So he goes north and then works his way up the coast to Caesarea. Well, you can imagine that this kind of made an impression on the eunuch. So he goes down into the water and he comes up and he's all alone. And that, I would think, would be kind of startling. Kind of a dramatic punctuation to the whole event. And I suspect, among other things, it's not something he ever forgot. He had a very significant experience there and will not forget. Chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Yeshua, whom you are persecuting. Now rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. You've all read a lot of Paul, and Paul is highly educated man. He is not a Sabra. In other words, he's born in Tarsus, so he's lived among the Gentiles all of his life. He studied under Gamaliel, so he knows the scriptures. So what I'm suggesting to you is 
that he has got a really good resume for going and talking to Gentiles, which is, of course, how he's going to be used. What God very often seems to do is when somebody has worked up a resume, he will take that person and use him based on the skills he developed. Verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now, we don't know whether they heard the words, because one of the things that seems to happen is people who are not actually being spoken to, but are around the one being spoken to, will hear something, but they won't hear the words. It'll sound just like noise. But they obviously know something's happened. So Paul's now in Damascus, verse 9. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. I guess he is. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. So Saul is expecting him. He's got the message, and he's also been given a vision that somebody's going to come and lay hands on him and he'll receive his sight. For three days he's been praying. So having had his come to Jesus meeting, I'm sure that he's probably repenting of a lot of stuff. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Paul indeed does suffer. As I say, he gets stoned and a bunch of other stuff happens to him. 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Yeshua, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has set me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, it's interesting that Saul's baptism, Paul's baptism here, is a one-shot deal. He gets the Holy Spirit on the spot. So 19 again. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Yeshua in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Yeshua was the Christ. Now, you remember I said earlier, if you start off fat, bald, and stupid, and you get baptized... When you come up out of the water, you're still going to be fat, bald, and stupid. Saul is, I mean, we've fat and bald, but he is not stupid. He knows the scriptures. He is a student of Gamaliel. 
He is a Torah scholar. So when his orientation gets changed, the scriptures that he already knows take on a new meaning because he now understands what they speak of. Sort of like the Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading Isaiah 53. Doesn't know what it means. Philip, who's full of the Holy Spirit and has been with Yeshua, shows up and says, this is what it means. Paul is also able to do that. So Paul, with his depth of knowledge of the scriptures, once he sees that Yeshua is who he is, all of these scriptures suddenly make sense, and he is now able to go in and expound on those scriptures in a way that defeats the Orthodox Jews who would argue against him. The only transfusion of knowledge that Paul has received is the knowledge that this guy Yeshua is in fact the Messiah and the Son of God. Once he sees that, all of his scriptural knowledge takes on a different light and, oh, okay, that's what that means, that's what that means, and, and just like dominoes fall. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So this is sort of religious warfare 101, because you had the same thing going on in Europe with the Catholics. I mean, you had the Inquisition and all that kind of stuff. So the idea that people will kill heretics is unremarkable. And Jews just as much as Christians. So here we got this guy that they believe is a heretic. And worse than being a heretic, he's an effective heretic. So they need to get rid of him. So 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. Well, they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how in Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Yeshua. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, it's really important to understand that Paul is of a different character than Peter and the rest of these guys. Because Peter, you remember, started off as a fisherman. In today's vernacular, I would say that Peter is a kid that grew up in Sunday school and isn't a preacher. He doesn't necessarily attend Bible studies. He's been with Yeshua. So, I mean, he's had the hands-on discipleship of the Lord, but he isn't necessarily a Torah scholar like Paul is. Paul is able to wrestle with these guys in the temple on an equal footing with them, whereas they can sort of dismiss this guy Peter as he's a fanatic fisherman, and he knows what he knows, but he doesn't know what we know, whereas Paul knows what we know, And in addition to that, he is now a believer in the way. So he is far more dangerous in that sense than Peter is, which is why they're trying to kill him, 
but they aren't trying to kill Peter. 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, I am going to stop there because we sort of got a new vignette, the healing of Aeneas. It's a good breaking point. It's not at a chapter, but the chapter goes on for a couple more paragraphs. The center of attention is going to be Peter for a while as opposed to Paul. Shut